0: let me set the scene for you. It's the evening of October 26th, 1992, and Canadians have just voted for the first time in their history in a constitutional referendum. Now to be clear, this isn't the first referendum in Canadian history, but it is the first constitutional one, which in this case means a public vote on a package of tectonic changes to the Canadian constitution, a package known as the Charlottetown Accord. As the clock strikes eight on the West Coast, the final polls close in British Columbia, but at this point in the night, it doesn't actually matter how British Columbians have voted. As CBC News anchor Peter Mansbridge declared, the Charlottetown Accord was already dead and there was no point trying to revive it. This is Charlottetown, a podcast series that presents some of the stories and the debates behind Canada's first and still only constitutional referendum. This series is brought to you by the Centre for Constitutional Studies, a hub for research and public education at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. I'm your series host, Dr Richard Mealy, and today's guests are Howard Leeson, Charisma Mathen, Daniel Turp and John White. So how do we get here? How do we get to this moment when, for the first time ever, Canadians across the country are called on to vote directly on whether to overhaul their constitution? Well, the answer to this question has very deep historical roots, but a convenient starting point for our purposes is the patriation of Canada's constitution in the early 1980s. And to this end, I asked Professor Howard Leeson, who was directly involved in the patriation process, if he could explain what it was all about.
1: Uh, The shorthand, or the the Coles Notes, as we used to call it, version, is that uh, Canada was unable to secure complete uh, separation from the British state back in the 1930s, uh, when several other uh, Commonwealth states did. And it left us unable to amend our own constitution. Uh, It left us, uh, in a sense, without completely separating from Great Britain and and, uh, becoming constitutional masters in our own house. And this went on. We had a number of meetings in 1935, 1940, 1947, 8, 1951, 52, 60, 65. You get the sense of how many meetings there were until we came to um, we came to a, a rather um, difficult juncture in, in regard to whether Quebec would separate from Canada or not, and uh, some some very important discussions took place then between the first ministers. In, in the period 1980 and 81 with a separatist government in Quebec, uh, the outcome of which was that nine provinces actually put forward a, a proposal which forced the prime minister to agree to. And of course the separatist government uh, in Quebec was in the position of being able to accept or not accept and they declined to accept, I think hoping that it, uh, this would allow them in future to, uh, to have another referendum and, and separate from Canada.
0: So there are three key points here. The first key point is that patriation was fundamentally about Canada taking control of its constitution from the UK, because up to that point, if Canadians wanted to amend their constitution, they had to ask the UK Parliament, the Imperial Parliament, if you like, to do it for them. Secondly, in order to do this, meaning in order to take control of their own constitution, Canadians would have to agree on the procedures that they would use from that point on to amend their constitution domestically. And thirdly, although this wasn't linked to patriation by definition, the Canadian Prime Minister at the time, Pierre Trudeau, was fervently committed to giving Canada a constitutional charter of rights. And this ended up being the sort of beating heart Of the Patriation Package when it was eventually passed as the Constitution Act in 1982. This raises the question, though, how exactly do we get to 1982 and the passage of the Constitution Act? Well, this takes us back to what Professor Leeson called the difficult juncture of 1980, when the Quebec government, led by a separatist premier, René Lévesque, held a referendum on whether Quebec should secede from Canada And during the referendum campaign, Prime Minister Trudeau makes this really quite dramatic public promise to Quebec. So if Quebecers vote against secession, Trudeau says, he'll move to renew the constitution of Canada, presumably to give Quebec a new, better deal within the Canadian Federation. And so when Quebecers reject secession, and they do so by quite a big margin in 1980, Trudeau reopens constitutional talks with the provinces, only to resort to drastic action when these talks falter?
2: He uh, decides to, to up the stakes by saying that he will simply pass a resolution in the Federal House of Commons and Senate, so the Federal Parliament, and bring that to the Parliament of the United Kingdom. And the reason that this is important is that until 1982, The only way to amend Canada's constitution was to do so through the British Parliament. So there was that really strong link maintained with the Parliament of the United Kingdom. And in that way, the Canadian constitution was not really within our control as Canadians, which is an important part of why the constitutional package was being sought to to not have that be the case again. But essentially, the Prime Minister was going to use that anomaly to his advantage in in that he was, was confident that if he presented a resolution from the Parliament of Canada to Westminster, which is the United Kingdom Parliament, to change the Constitution, they would do that. And he did not believe that they would inquire into the internal political dynamics of Canada. In essence... He was proposing, he was threatening, if you will, to do it unilaterally without provincial consent.
0: That was Professor Charisma Mathen of the University of Ottawa. And as you just mentioned, Trudeau's intent for the fall of 1980 was to proceed with patriation unilaterally by cutting the provincial governments out of the equation. And as you'd imagine, uh, the, the provinces aren't exactly stoked about this. And so they turned to the courts to try and stop Trudeau in his tracks.
2: In response, the provinces decided to put that issue. Could the Prime Minister take that kind of request to the United Kingdom Parliament? Could he achieve that kind of constitutional change unilaterally? Regardless of what the provinces thought about it, they decided to put that question to the Canadian courts. And they did so through a special legal proceeding that is called a reference. And so that's the sort of origin story. The provinces could not directly go to the Supreme Court of Canada in this kind of special reference proceeding. They had to first go to their own provincial courts of appeal. And so three provinces, Quebec, Manitoba, and Newfoundland, initiate reference questions to their courts of appeal but they coordinate amongst themselves and they represent a larger grouping of eight provinces who are very opposed to to this idea of unilateral action by the prime minister. They're actually called the gang of eight. And so these three reference proceedings go forth in the provincial courts of appeal. And once those courts issue their advisory opinions, they can then be appealed as of right, which means there's an automatic right of appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, and so uh, you have the issue being heard and deliberated by the Supreme Court of Canada uh, in 1981, and they release what is called the patriation reference. <laughs>
0: Now, the Supreme Court's decision in the patriation reference is quite complicated, but basically it held that while cutting the provinces out of the patriation process wasn't technically illegal, it did violate something called a constitutional convention, meaning an unwritten and legally unenforceable rule derived from past political practice. So the court couldn't enforce this convention, but the fact that it recognised it ended up having a profound impact on the way that patriation unfolded.
2: The important point about a constitutional convention, if it becomes the subject of a court um, opinion, is that the court is not able to really enforce the convention. All they can do is give their opinion as to whether it exists and perhaps whether in a particular case it has not been followed. But that's really a distinction that is more theoretical than real because once the Supreme Court provided its opinion, Even on this, quote unquote, injusticiable issue, it had a profound political effect. And so it was as if it had issued an order. "Okay, Prime Minister, we're going to, in fact, enjoin you from going to the UK Parliament. The effect was that um, it would have been very difficult for the Prime Minister simply to ignore that opinion.
0: So the Supreme Court doesn't tell Trudeau that he has to go back and re-enter talks with the provinces, but this is precisely the effect of the court's decision. And so once again, Canada's governments find themselves back at the negotiating table. But this time, on November 5th, 1981, these negotiations produce a very consequential but very controversial deal
1: The First Ministers had been in discussions for three solid days. It actually looked as if things would collapse. Uh, A number of us, uh, a number of provinces got together first, including uh, Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta uh, in particular, but several other provinces eventually uh, amounting to eight that night. Uh, Provinces that were interested in finding some kind of compromise that a majority of provinces could agree to but in particular that Ontario uh, could agree to so that we could have um, at, at least a majority of the provinces. Ontario was, uh, was the major province on the other side uh, other sides supporting uh, Prime Minister Trudeau at that point. Um, those discussions, the first set of discussions took place between uh, three provinces, British Columbia, Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, the deputy ministers involved were myself and two other deputies uh, we were essentially tasked with going and uh, and getting a deal uh, the, the only time in my career I think that I was set off to to actually finalize something instead of uh, negotiating yet another detail and in about two hours we submitted that to our uh, to premier Blakeney first who then uh, went ahead discussing with other provinces the uh, Quebec uh, government was, was not uh, involved in those discussions for two reasons. Number one, they were physically over in Hull uh, instead of in Ottawa. But secondly, it was the estimation of the provinces that were involved that there, until there was something that we could actually present to both the federal government and to Quebec, uh, we wanted to, in a sense, get our own house in order and, and get the details of the uh, of the whole thing worked out, which we did. Um, Ontario finally agreed uh, with uh, what turned out to be all but two provinces uh, aside from Quebec. Uh, both New Brunswick was notified the next morning and Manitoba was notified the next morning. But Quebec was notified in the morning as well when the premiers got together, those eight provinces which had been opposing patriation up until then. Um, Mr. Levesque was not happy. Uh, he was not happy, first of all, that the discussion had gone on, but secondly, he was very unhappy, of course, that there was, uh, in fact, a uh, an agreement amongst the other provinces. And uh, from there, you get what was commonly referred to as "night of the long knives." That is, um, the feeling in, in on the part of uh, Quebec that the other provinces had should not have gone ahead without Quebec present. Uh, that's frankly a bit disingenuous on their part, because of course these discussions went on all the time outside. Um, and we were left with a, you know, the, we were left with this feeling that Quebec simply could not agree. They said to the, to the, uh, a settlement that had been agreed to by the other uh, provinces. So from there, the nationalists in Quebec, those that wanted to separate, of course, took that to mean that, you know, that, uh, There was a Night of the Long Knives, Quebec was left out, uh, and that English Canada had rejected Quebec at that point.
0: Professor Leeson calls the Night of the Long Knives a political myth, but plenty of Quebecers still feel an acute sense of betrayal over what happened that night. To give you a quick summary, René Levesque had been part of the Gang of Eight, the group of eight provincial leaders that opposed Trudeau's constitutional reforms. From Levesque's perspective, the Night of the Long Knives on November 4th was the moment when the gang excluded Quebec and cooked up their own constitutional deal with Trudeau's government. By contrast, some other members of the gang accused Levesque himself of betrayal, specifically because he'd spontaneously sided with Trudeau on the idea of putting any new deal to a national referendum. For Professor Daniel Turp, though, who we hear from now, the essence of patriation is less about this dispute, less about Levesque and the Gang of Eight, and more about Trudeau's failure to keep the promise that he made to the Quebec people in 1980. The promise that saying no to sovereignty would mean saying yes to a new constitutional deal for Quebec.
3: Well, you know, those negotiations started a, a few weeks only after the the, uh, the referendum in 1980. Monsieur Trudeau seize the opportunity to to uh, put ahead a constitutional agenda and have uh, a, a new Constitution of Canada uh, adopted because that was his dream, you know. Since he he entered into federal politics in 1965 as a Minister of Justice and 1968 as a as a Prime Minister of Canada, he wanted to patriate the Constitution. He wanted to entrench a Charter of Rights in the Constitution. He wanted to make some changes to the federal institutions. So, you know, it was a great great opportunity. For him, Quebec had just said no. People would had, had said that they wanted to stay in Canada. He had promised during the referendum campaign to deal with Quebec's uh, traditional uh, claims for change. And, and he went in the Saint Paul Sauvé and he said that he was putting the seats of his Liberal Party in his own seat. In question, and he, which was suggested that he would resign if the, the the people would vote yes for sovereignty association, and people in Quebec interpreted that as yeah he's going to change the constitution he's he's going to really give Quebec what it wants you know maybe answer uh, what does Quebec want by by. Uh, uh giving it more powers because that w- w- that was a traditional claim more powers in the area of culture of, of communications but also in the social issues and even economic uh, uh, endeavors and and what happened is he did the opposite. You know, he didn't really take into account those claims. And what he did is to uh, entrench a charter of rights. He even abrogated some provisions of the charter of the French language in, in a charter of rights that didn't have the assent of the, of the government of Quebec, the parliament of Quebec and the people of Quebec. And still today in 2021, that assent has never been given. So, you know, it was very frustrating for Monsieur Lévesque. And people said, oh, you know, Monsieur Lévesque doesn't believe in this. And he doesn't really want to change the constitution and want Quebec to become part of Canada. But Monsieur Lévesque was a very well-respected, a, a person that was, was a, a man of his word. And he, he did want to you know, negotiate in good faith. And people said, no, no, no way. And then you had the Gang of Eight. And then there was this issue of maybe holding a referendum. Monsieur Lévesque said yes. And Trudeau next day, he got uh, nine other premiers to accept a deal that Monsieur Lévesque didn't accept. So it created a lot, not only a frustration, but a lot of, of you know, I would say, some disgust about what had happened on that uh, night, which was called or what has been framed as la nuit des longs couteaux. How you say that in English? The, 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 the night of the long knives. The night of the long knives. And then that's in 19... 19- 81 and in in 1981 is now 40 years exactly ago, and people still call it like that. Still don't accept it. Canada has never signed that document, and uh, the patriation is still something that was put in the in the throat, was brought in the throat of Quebecers and its governments and its its parliament, its people. And that is still something that's uh, uh, very unacceptable from, from a democratic standpoint, among other things.
0: To pick up on a key point here, is Professor Turt right that a deal with a committed separatist like Mr. Levesque was possible? I asked Professor Leeson for his perspective on this as someone directly involved in the patriation process.
1: If you want my opinion and the opinion of my Premier and my Minister at that point, Mr. Romano and Mr. Uh, uh, Blakeney, the answer is no. Uh, We had enough evidence from the earlier part of the, uh, um, if you will, the negotiations with Quebec itself, especially in April and in June, where Quebec, as far as we were concerned, made it quite clear that there were only two outcomes possible. Number one, that the federal government would withdraw withdraw patriation and negotiations would go on into the future, in which case the government of Quebec would win, as they put it, or that uh, there would be a a unilateral uh, execution of patriation by the federal government without the eight provinces involved, and again, they would win. It never really occurred to them, I think, that uh, because they saw the fight is between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Levesque, between Quebec and the federal government. It never occurred to them that, uh, that the other nine might get together and actually put together a deal uh, to put to both Mr. Levesque and Mr. Trudeau. So in any case, uh, my view is that no, there was no possible deal at that point.
0: Now, of course, uh, nobody ultimately knows the inner workings of René Lévesque's mind, and so we'll never know if Professor Turp or Professor Leeson is right about the chances of a Quebec-inclusive deal. What we do know, though, as Professor Turp was keen to stress, is that the Night of the Long Knives narrative is not just about Quebec feeling left out of crucial talks, but is also about the Quebec government's profound disagreement with the substance of the resultant deal.
3: You you cannot uh, suggest that it's not substantive. Although today say people, well, you know, in Quebec, uh, Quebecers are very happy to have this Charter of Rights that protects the rights of of individuals and and, and minorities and, and, and the English-speaking in the English speaking minority and Quebec, but also the French speaking minorities elsewhere in Canada and and. Uh, but, you know, there the, were the, the fundamental changes made uh, without the consent of, of Quebec. So that's very substantive. But what is substantive is that, you know, what Quebec wanted is, is mainly a new distribution of powers uh, in many areas. And, and that didn't happen. Uh, and. Uh, there was no recognition also of quebec as a as a, as a distinct society in the 1982 constitution act uh, but there was a, a recognition of of uh, of Aboriginal nations. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, by Article 25 and 35 of that Constitution Act. So, uh, and it, it doesn't mean we should oppose the, these these claims for recognition on the part of Aboriginal peoples and Indigenous peoples and, and the Quebec Nation or, or or people. But it's very systemic. But what probably is more remembered still now is is the procedural. Uh, Issue is the fact that you know Trudeau just went ahead, and and was seen also as as breaching what Quebec had always considered uh, uh, its right of veto.
0: Let's pause here because the night of the long knives narrative that we've been focusing on, the Quebec betrayal narrative, if you like, is certainly not the only vantage point from which patriation can be viewed. And in a 2017 article, Professor Leeson lays out a number of other lenses of patriation. The first of which he describes as triumphant federalism. So, what exactly is triumphant federalism?
1: Oh, just that the federal government, of course, had started the whole process going; uh, that it actually came to a conclusion with patriation, and that uh, Mr. Trudeau was the uh, was, if you will, uh, the the winner of that situation, although. Uh, Mr. Levesque did not agree. And so triumphant federalism, as I put it, is that uh, Mr. Trudeau actually had the day, if you will. Uh, In fact, what happened, as I mentioned before, is that uh, he actually was put in a position of having to accept or reject a proposal by the nine provinces. In effect, meaning that he would have had to go to the people of Canada saying something like, well, there is a proposal which nine provinces have agreed to, but I don't want to do that and continue the fight with Quebec uh, at that point. Or he could say Quebec has a veto, which he had, uh, he had said they didn't have before. And therefore, uh, so he was in an intolerable position at that point. So, but nevertheless, the narrative that comes out then is that he had steered this whole process and it, it resulted in patriation. And in that sense, you know, it's correct. It's just that uh, it wasn't the patriation that he wanted, especially in terms of the amending
0: formula and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So to expand on this a bit, it is easy to fall into the trap of thinking about patriation mainly in terms of personalities and especially in terms of the clash between René Lévesque and Pierre Trudeau. And to be clear, this was definitely a big part of the patriation story but if we focus all of our attention here on this sort of clash of the titans, we neglect the key role played not just by the provinces but also by a number of historically marginalized constitutional actors, most notably Indigenous peoples and women's groups. And despite not being parties to the formal negotiations, these actors actually had a huge impact on what became the Constitution Act, in part through something called the special joint committee on the constitution.
2: Yeah, so the, the special joint committee of uh, on on the constitution was really quite a remarkable moment um, in Canadian constitutional history, where for the first first time you had a a, a very democratized um, understanding of how constitutional constitutional rules and orders should be considered and debated. And uh, it was really um, it played an enormous role in reviewing uh, various drafts and uh, of the Constitution because, in fact, the Constitution Act, 1982, uh, underwent many many drafts before we got the one that was actually entrenched in our Constitution. And the Joint Committee as well included and heard from a variety of groups, which until then, had really been very much marginalized in, the, in, in Canadian law and certainly in Canadian constitutional history, including women's groups and Indigenous groups. And the role played by women in the bringing home of Canada's constitution is really quite a remarkable one. And many of their efforts focused on the equality rights in, uh, in the Charter. And specifically, how the Charter could best protect the sex equality rights of of women, and of course of all persons, but particularly women, because of what they saw as a very checkered past in Canadian courts and in Canadian law of dealing with the position of women.
0: Through their contributions to the Committee and through various other initiatives, these quote-unquote new constitutional players changed the shape of the process, resulting in a constitution act that includes a robust equality rights provision in section 15, a guarantee of sex equality in section 28, and the official entrenchment of Aboriginal and treaty rights in section 35. At this point, then, we have three quite different perspectives on patriation. One that emphasises Quebec's betrayal, one that emphasises Trudeau's achievement, and one that emphasises the new status and influence of these previously marginalised constitutional actors. To this you can then add the fourth perspective that Professor Leeson has already hinted at a couple of times, and that's the idea that it was actually the provinces that won biggest with patriation by squeezing concessions from Trudeau on things like the Notwithstanding Clause, a provision of the Constitution that lets provinces derogate from certain provisions of Trudeau's Charter of Rights. This then gives us four different lenses through which we can view patriation. And I asked Professor Leeson, as someone who was intimately involved in the patriation process, if he could assess and compare the importance of these different lenses or narratives.
1: I think the first two lenses, that is, uh, Night of the Long Knives and Triumph and Federalism, are largely political narratives. Uh, selling, if you will, the The narratives which are most convenient for the two participants, Premier Levesque and Prime Minister Trudeau. The second two narratives, I think, are very important for two respects, in two respects. The first is that the, it it is largely, I think, and as I've said in my article and in other books, that I think it's, we got patriation largely because of the several premiers, in particular the Premier, Premier Lougheed of Alberta, Premier Davis of Ontario, and Premier Blakeney of Saskatchewan. They were the, the prime movers of the whole process. And it was their deal which forced uh, the prime minister to actually acquiesce to the to the compromise they had put together. So that's a very strong neg- uh, narrative, which explains what happened in the final process. The last narrative, though, having to do with special interest groups is important, I think, because while this is the first time they participate, they clearly are involved in what's going to become a continuing process, an unfinished business, if you will, of, of constitutional change, which ought to have been taken care of in several respects in the decades that follow, but gets truncated or almost completely stopped by what happens with Meech Lake and Charlottetown after that. So I think that's an important narrative, if you will, as well, for different reasons.
0: Now the next episode is going to focus on the role of some of these newly mobilised extra-governmental forces during the so-called Meech Lake phase, but for now let's just end this episode with a survey of where we are in the story of Canada's path to the 92 referendum. So in the spring of 1982, the Constitution Act, which included Trudeau's Charter of Rights, was signed into law without the consent of the government of Quebec, thereby setting Canada up for what turned out to be a decade or so of constitutional wrangling. And even though I cautioned earlier about adopting a sort of myopic Levesque versus Trudeau perspective on what had just happened... This was ultimately the key fight that came to define the coming years, a fight between those who viewed patriation as an unconscionable betrayal of Quebec, and those who found overriding value in Trudeau's now entrenched, if provincially modified, constitutional vision. And as an example of this second perspective, I want to give the final word in this episode to Professor John White, who's going to highlight the importance of Trudeau's Charter of Rights to any assessment of patriations enduring meanings and legacies. Here's John White, then, to end the episode.
1: You know, I I'm I don't want to be total Trudeauite here, but yes, human rights actually <laughs> is a constitutional value in the world. I mean, n- not in the minds of thousands and millions of leaders, apparently, but uh, but it's 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 a it's a preeminent um, and noble. Uh, set of ideas for the world and uh, every time we can establish them as the ideas for us we establish them as the ideas for others and that's really important